After Dublin, Ireland's second city is the capital of Northern Ireland in the UK. It's Belfast, which started the 20th century as an industrial powerhouse. When the city launched the ill-fated Titanic in 1912, it had the largest shipbuilding facilities in the entire world. A popular new Titanic museum opened in 2012 to celebrate the centennial of the ship's famous sinking. Belfast became known for its bloody sectarian troubles in the latter half of the 20th century. But since the Good Friday Accord was signed back in 1998, Belfast has gained stature as a place for international investment and as a popular visitor attraction. Susie Miller was raised in Belfast. She's reported for BBC Ulster for many years and now leads tours of her hometown, including sites connected to the infamous Titanic, on which her grandfather worked and died. Susie, welcome. Pleasure to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. I didn't mean to say celebrate the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, but it is quite a big event in Belfast. Yeah, how about commemorate? That's maybe a better way of putting it. That's that's what we did in 2012. New big centre opened in the Titanic Quarter, which was designed to, to draw people in and tell them the story of why the ship was built in Belfast. A lot of people don't know that, that the Titanic right. was actually built in Belfast 100 years ago. Belfast was the centre for shipbuilding. It was the biggest shipbuilders in the world. But Titanic is the only one anybody remembers, obviously, because of the story. So you built other mammoth ships. We did, yes. Harland and Wolfe, the shipbuilders, they moved into more industrial ships than huge, big oil platforms. In fact, right now in Belfast, there's a big Brazilian oil platform, massive big thing. It looks like a big Christmas tree, which is being refurbished underneath the big cranes. So this heavy industrial heritage carries on in Belfast. It does, but to put it in some sort of context, 100 years ago, Harland and Wolf employed something like 30,000 people. Now it's about 500. Okay, so it's not quite the glory days of Belfast shipbuilding, but when you think about the Titanic, I understand there was the Titanic had a sister ship. There were two sisters, yes. Olympic was the first one, Uh and then the Titanic, and then Britannic. What was the Britannic's first name? She was actually to be called Gigantic, first of all. But when Titanic went down, they thought, ah, let's give this Gigantic a different... It just doesn't quite work. It it seemed a bit grandiose after what had happened to Titanic. And you know, the thing about what happened to Titanic was that after that, Belfast didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about Titanic. Right. Because there was a sense of perhaps shame, embarrassment. We had built this wonderful ship, biggest ship in the world, most expensive ship, all these people traveling on it. 13 days after she sailed out of Belfast Loch, she was at the bottom of the ocean. 13 days? 13 days, yes. She sailed to Southampton and then she started. So the pride and joy of Belfast. All gone within less than two weeks. Three years to build it. And people just couldn't deal with it. I suppose it's the Celtic way, push it under the carpet and don't think about it. So it's really only within recent years that we've started to say, hey, you know, we built this thing. When the big movie came out, James Cameron's movie came out in the 90s, we realized that the rest of the world had this huge appetite for all things to do with Titanic. Here we were sitting on the backstory and not sharing it with anyone. So it's been a gradual process, and since more people have started to come up north and see what's there, we've developed this Titanic industry. Why not? And it's probably a huge tourism boom to go up and see the the dry dock where the Titanic was built. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, all the hardware is still there. It hasn't been touched over the years, so you can see all these places that are so significant. 
Now, when I come into Belfast, the first thing I see is Samson and Goliath. Yeah. Tell us about Samson and Goliath and what they mean to you as a Belfast person. Samson and Goliath are two huge big cranes, and they belong to Harland and Wolfe, so they have H and W on the top of them. So that's the, the nickname H&W. is Samson and Goliath. And they that, just, they're just towering. Name. They're like skyscrapers, oh, but they're, they're cranes. Yes, they're massive. And they move. They move up and down. So people yeah. sometimes use them as a reference point for where they are in the city, come back the next day and go, where'd the cranes go? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're working, you know? You know, an interesting, I was just in Glasgow, and I've just been in Antwerp and just been in Hamburg, and one of my themes lately is to recognize the industrial age powerhouses that were kind of second cities, a little mm-hmm. bit of rust belt, yeah. and then they're coming back in. Is there a sense that Belfast was rusty, but now it's getting rejuvenated? Yes, in some ways. There's a lot of tech industries in Belfast, for example. There's a, mm-hmm. that, the science park down where that dock you mentioned is where Titanic was finished out. So, yes, but, you know, it's still a little bit rusty around the edges. All of those heavy industries, and I can't emphasize enough how industrial Belfast was. It was pretty much the second city mm-hmm. when the British Empire was at its peak. It's all gone. It's all gone. We have no manufacturing industry to speak of now. Hmm. However, there is a great sense of pride in the place. And when you go to Belfast, you can easily find yourself sightseeing beautiful buildings and and monuments and so on that come from those glory days. That's it. If you look at the city hall, I mean, it was built around the year 1900. Mm -hmm. It is glorious. And if you go to the fancy saloons and the the parks, this is all from the Victorian age, isn't it? When Belfast was really up there. They really are statement buildings. They're showing off, hey, look at us. You know, we're important in this part of the British Empire and we want to show off. So yeah, the city hall is one of my favorites. It's just absolutely beautiful. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through Northern Ireland right now with a Belfast journalist and a Belfast tour guide, Susie Miller. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Lynn is on the phone from Olympia in Washington. Lynn, thanks for your call. You're welcome, Rick. Do you have a comment or a question about Belfast for Susie? I do. Our family's going to be visiting there in a few months, and I'd like to know, number one, what sites, sounds like Titanic is one of them, do we not want to miss in Belfast? And because we won't have a car... What are the transportation options for us? Okay, Lynn. Yeah, you won't need a car. Belfast is a really workable city, both from just walking and from public transport. The other thing you'll find when you get there is everybody is so happy to help you. Ask any local on the street. If they see you pouring over a map, they'll be straight over. Can I be of assistance? (laughs) They'll even offer you a lift in the car. So that's up to you whether you want to do that or not, but you will have no problem getting your way around. So you're right. Yeah, Titanic, I suppose, is on everybody's minds at the moment. And that's a good thing to go and see good structured thing. Beyond that, you know, there's nothing to stop you getting out of the city a little bit, going up to the north coast. The Causeway coast is about 60 miles away. Again, well served by public transport. And that is a really pretty place. You're on the Atlantic coast. Uh, Within the city itself, the Ulster Museum is lovely. It's set in a parkland called Botanic Gardens. They've got an old palm house there, which predates Kew Gardens. Palm House is one of those glass and iron structures from 100 years ago, and it's a a garden indoors, kind of a tropical climate right there in Belfast. It is. It's where we go to warm up. Like like Kew Gardens in London. (laughs) It is a delightful place to go. The whole garden and that Ulster Museum that, that Susie's talking about. Susie, when I was in the Ulster Museum, I enjoyed looking at the history because... Everybody gets to share their history from their perspective. 
and it gave That's the right. potato famine a more of a British-friendly spin Ooh. compared to the spin you'd get <laughs> if you went to a museum in the Republic. Yeah. Was there anything to that when you went to the Ulster Museum? It's a, such a hard thing for museums to interpret. Anything to do with the conflict between sort of British traditions and Irish traditions is, so it is very, dicey. very difficult to But if to you go to the Republic, go to. you're going to get just the Republic-Irish uh, narrative. And yeah. it is worth getting a little bit of the British uh, narrative. And you'll likely get that in Belfast at the Ulster Museum. You will indeed, yes. It's definitely worth stopping by. They've got treasure from Spanish galleons. Would you believe that? Who expects to see that in Ireland? So, you know, it's worth a visit. Definitely a rainy day place to go. And a lot of that treasure seems to was spent on the Crown Liquor Saloon. Describe this incredible saloon that you see right downtown. <laughs> the Crown Liquor Saloon is the only bar in the world which is owned by the National Trust. Now, the National Trust, for those of you who don't know, is like a heritage all over the UK. They usually preserve like stately homes and things like that in your sort of Downton Abbey type places. But here in the middle of Belfast is this bar. It's tiled, mosaiced, it's got stained glass windows and it's absolutely gorgeous. Oh, it's Victoriana like over the top, isn't really it? really is, yes. Uh-huh. And they pour the best Guinness of anywhere. And they got snugs, these little cozy corners that you can sit down with your partner and have a drink. That's it, yes. Well, you'll normally get sat upon by about 12 more tourists because, you know, those snugs are in demand. So you won't have it to yourself for very long. <laughs> But, you know, funny story, they just uh, forgot to renew their liquor license in the Crown, so they were out of business for a couple of weeks, but they're back up and running. That's the National Trust. They aren't going to think about that. Oh, my goodness. So don't worry. It's back up there pouring its lovely Guinness. There you go, Lynn. I hope that's helpful. It is. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. Wendy's on the line in San Jose, California. Wendy, thanks for calling in. Oh, thank you. Hi, Susie. We're going to be... um in uh, Belfast, traveling with a couple of friends, and we're wondering if there's uh, any place to visit uh, that has to do with the uh, very popular Game of Thrones show that's on HBO. I understand that maybe there's a studio there where it was filmed, or any filming locations that might be available. Yes, to both of those. There is a studio actually down in Titanic Quarter, and that's where they've shot the interior stuff for the last four seasons of Game of Thrones. Used to be in the old days, you could walk past and you would see people in sort of costumes. We used to see Sean Bean, the actor, standing outside before he got beheaded, I think, in series one. But they've really sort of clamped down on what you can see around there now. You'll see scenery and props outside, but little else. However, there is a specialist tour that you can do, uh, which takes you around some of those Game of Thrones locations. Some of them are in forests, some is hmm. up on the north coast, up near Carrick Reed Rope Bridge. So there's lots of ways you can do that tour within one day. Have you heard of the Dark Hedges, Wendy? No. That's one of the locations that they use. It's like trees overlapping a road. And it's absolutely stunning. It's like something out of a a Nordic troll story or something. So that's worth a look. But when you take that Game of Thrones tour, that's one of the locations you'll visit. And the guide will explain and even play bits of the show so you know what you're looking at. There you go, Wendy. Thanks for the call. Oh, thank you so very much. Happy travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Susie Miller about Belfast. And, you know, we've been talking almost the entire interview here without mentioning safety. Is it safe for tourists to go to Belfast? I mean, it's famous for, infamous for the troubles of the past. Mm -hmm. What's the current situation for visitors? You're 100% safe. You know, don't walk around with your your wallet tucked out of your back pocket like any other city, but Mm -hmm. you're never going to get mugged or anything like that in Belfast. But I think what you're you're talking about, you know, is a bomb going to go off, that sort of thing? No, those days are behind us. If there are any sort of bomb warnings, the army are there, they defuse them, the area's cleared. 
nothing happens. Do you know, the other week there was a bomb scare in the middle of Belfast city centre and I was actually reporting on it for the BBC. turned out to be a hoax, but really what struck me was that life went on as normal. A hundred yards down the street, people were out partying. They were even actually taking selfies with a little robot that goes to defuse and have a look at the bomb. Oh, no, that's a different age altogether then. <laughs> but, Isn't it? So thank goodness Ireland has figured this out. I'm, I'm sure there's a few challenges ahead, but generally yeah. the troubles are a thing of the past in Ireland, and that's an inspiration for other nations and countries that are dealing with sectarian squabbles. Mm-hmm. As a tourist today, is it still interesting to go into the sectarian neighborhoods to go up Falls Road or, you know, to go into the Protestant communities and the Catholic communities? Yes, definitely, because there's so much that Mm -hmm. you can see. Uh, We like to paint our opinions on the walls. So you have the very famous political murals from both uh, the Republican... And those are still there, because those are some of the most stirring street art I've seen anywhere in Europe are the powerful murals Mm -hmm. that show the passion and the history of these two communities, and that they've sorted all this out is really quite a triumph. Yep, and you get them on both sides. And, you know, very interesting that they take in not only Irish history, but they'll bring in Cuba, and they'll bring in Palestine, and they'll bring in Guatemala, you know, as if we hadn't enough of our own stuff. Celebrating people in solidarity (laughs) with people's movements all over the place. That's it. So, But basically, if tourists are interested, they can, using discretion, common sense, go into the Catholic areas and go into the working-class Protestant areas, enjoy the art on the walls, Mm -hmm. talk to people, and uh, be not taking any needless risks. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. Most of these are on main roads, so you're never going into neighborhoods where you're stuck in the middle of nowhere. And, yeah, people are very used to tourists coming up, taking photographs, asking them questions. In fact, in the Protestant tradition particularly, they're very glad that you've taken the time to try to understand their point of view. Very nice. Susie, in my memory, when, when I go to Belfast, we've got these shared black taxis that are for, you know, poor families and working class families that yeah. don't have a car. Mm-hmm. Describe the black taxi service. It's sort of like a communal taxi, isn't it? Yeah, they tend to go into one area or another, you know, depending on whether it's nationalist or, or unionist. And uh, everybody just piles on in there. It's it's very confusing for people who are used to taking London black cabs because they look exactly the same. When you jump into one of those cabs in London, it's yours and it takes you to your destination. You jump into one of those in Belfast and you're sharing it with as many other people. You're sharing it with strollers. You're sharing it with people's cream buns that they've got out of the bakery. I heard a terrible story of somebody sitting on the cream buns recently. <laughs> And these taxis, they stop at the bus stops, so they're just right. like a sort of public so transport. So you, you got a big black cab. I mean, we know them from traditionally in London, and you mm-hmm. can fit eight people in them probably. About that. And then they're very cheap. They're designed for working class people getting into town that can't afford a car and probably don't have a car. Yeah. And uh, they go into the different neighborhoods. You mentioned nationalist and unionist, and just as if that's part of your life, of course, yeah. we have to think about that. So mm-hmm. unionists would be... Catholic families that would be inclined to like a union of Ireland, whereas nationalists would be... No? Um, nope. Okay, so what is a unionist? Oh, the way around. Yeah, okay. th- these are all handy labels, really, for our political viewpoints. But unionists want to maintain the union with the United ah, okay. Kingdom, there okay? And then nationalists want the nation of Ireland to be one. The other handles we use are Republican for that same nationalist. Republicans would want what? They want Uh, to be part of the Irish Republic. Yeah, exactly. And not necessarily Catholic, but to be free from London. Yes, yes, autonomous. You know, that that Ireland as as one island should be one, all of the counties, no such thing as Northern Ireland. And a nationalist would be... Same thing. Same thing. And then the unionists appreciate the union with Northern Ireland and London. Correct. Like United Kingdom. Yes, exactly. Yes. Also known as loyalists because they're very loyal to the the Queen in particular. If you drive up the Shankill Road, the main thoroughfare through 
loyalist Belfast, you'll see loads of reference to the Queen and the royal family. And this is powerful stuff. And if you're there and you want to go into the um, Republican part and you go to the the Milltown Cemetery... Yes, that's where the the Republican plot is. That's where uh, people who were IRA volunteers who were perhaps killed in action, that's where they are honoured and buried. And it's been the scene of a lot of controversy over the years in itself. There was an attack on an IRA funeral in which more people were killed. It's very well renowned. But apart from that, it's just a regular cemetery. They're just regular people buried there as well. And it's a beautiful cemetery, fascinating cemetery, beautiful view. And you Mm -hmm. do have the Celtic cross tombstones that would be for the the Catholic uh, uh, martyrs that are there and so on. We always call it Catholics and Protestants, but it seems to me it's more economic and more fundamental than just it's, religious. Yeah, you know, it has so little to do with religion. I mean, none of these people who are out on the streets making a noise are going to church. So yes. it's really to do with cultural identity. It's whether you feel that your roots are in Ireland or whether you feel that you're English or Scottish and have come across. I mean, I, I my family were Scottish originally, so that's mm. my side of the divide. However, I don't really care, you know? Yeah, just your as family long was as... planted there generations ago, and today, you, uh-huh. you know, you're just living out your life just there. just part of the scenery, you know? Now, was there, a long time ago, there was a lot more money in the North, and the Republic was really a basket case economically, and mm-hmm. then they had the Celtic Tiger, and the Republic really, its economy was booming. Yeah. The gap in rich and poor between North and South, when that vanished, mm-hmm. did that take some of the fear away from figuring out how to get over the troubles, do you think? Do you know, yeah, I think it probably did. And as well as that, the influx of, of other nations like Polish and Latvian, Lithuanian, the fact that they all came and made their home in Ireland uh, when the European borders were opened, and that kind of diluted the whole situation. Now, that's interesting because there was 100,000 Polish workers in the Republic of Ireland at, at one point, I understand. That's I mean, right, They had yeah. a lot of guest workers coming in because of the booming economy in Ireland and with this affluence and with this... Uh, more cosmopolitan kind of uh, mix of people, Mm -hmm. people are realizing, hey, violence is not the way. Definitely. Susie Miller, thank you so much for sharing with us a little understanding of Belfast. And it's certainly important when you're planning a trip to Ireland to remember Belfast is a world-class city. Thank you. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.